This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. India is not only the world's largest democracy, its economy is expanding faster than China's right now. This has given rise to a new billionaire class in India. Currently, the country's top 1% own nearly 60% of the wealth. Meanwhile, at least 65 million of India's population live in slums. A new book looks at this disparity between the country's wealthy and poor. It is titled The Billionaire Raj, A Journey Through India's New Gilded Age. The author is James Crabtree, who's an associate professor of practice at the National University of Singapore. He's also former Mumbai bureau chief for the Financial Times. James, welcome. Thank you for your time today, sir. Thanks so much for having me. It's very kind of you. Thank you. I mean, you've been very vocal again in uh, the the path that we have seen here for India. It has been an incredible rise of their economy right now. But when you look at the disparity that we see at the moment, what has been really driving the change at the, uh, over the last few years? Yeah, well, as you say, India, has um, its economy has grown very quickly of late, it's the world's fastest growing economy. It's moved a lot of people out of poverty, and all of that's a good thing. Um, but along with that has come a very substantial increase in inequality. Um, and that tends not to be a great thing for countries as they try and develop out of poverty and into middle-income status. Some of that uh, wealth at the top has been created entirely the right way by you know world-class companies coming out of India in areas like IT or generic pharmaceuticals. But the problem has come that a lot of that wealth has come effectively through crony capitalism, um, the collusion between the, the business elite and the political elite um, in areas that have a lot of government regulation. That's much less healthy. So even though the, the, the numbers of billionaires are increasing quicker uh, in that country, it does seem like there are quite a few similarities to what you're, you're reporting about in, in India and writing about in, in India in your book compared to what we have seen here in the United States over the years. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, so many countries have gone through this stage of tumultuous, very rapid early industrialization. It happened in Britain in the 1820s, and famously it happened in the American Gilded Age after the Civil War. And there you had a lot of the same patterns that you see in India today. So very, very rapid wealth creation at the top with the, the millionaire class, as they were called, the robber barons, very corrupt urban politics, mass urbanization, the creation of a new middle class. And, and, and so if you were to look at America in the 1880s, you'd have been pretty downbeat maybe about the country's prospects, and, and then eventually things, uh, things turned around. That's a lot like what India looks at, at the moment. So, you know, lots of, lots of inequality, lots of problems, but no particular reason why it, why it can't improve. And certainly an economy that's very vibrant and fast-growing. So how do you think that this disparity in India has impacted the people on the other end of the financial scale? I, I gave that statistic earlier about, you know, 65, uh, 65 million people who are, you know, who are in poverty at this point. How has, it, how has this disparity impacted them specifically? Well, India's story on poverty reduction is actually pretty good. Um, so it wasn't that long ago, maybe 10 or 20 years, in which you had hundreds of millions of very poor people, meaning those living below $2 a day. Um, and so India is moving pretty quickly to um, reduce that. Uh, so it is a case in which the rising tide is lifting certainly many boats, if not all. And the problem is more that while the progress of people at the bottom has been pretty good, the progress at the top has been spectacular. Um, now, some people don't have a problem with that, but 
when you start getting into the territory of Brazil or South Africa, very, very um, unequal countries with very entrenched um, a privilege at the top, then that's not very healthy for countries that need to reform and develop. If you look at the successful economies of Eastern Asia, so where mm -hmm. I sit in Singapore or South Korea, Taiwan, these countries were all a bit more equal than India is now. And so if India keeps going on the path that it's on, it, it, it gets it into quite worrying territory where it begins to look more like an African or a Latin American country than the, the successes of East Asia. And, and well, how does the, the, the political process moving in, the for, in forward in terms of change of prime minister or president moving forward potentially impact that? Does, is there any expectation that a change of leadership would change that? Um, well, so the moment you have India's prime minister is uh, Narendra Modi. He was elected in 2014 in a landslide election victory that was fought predominantly on an anti-corruption and pro-growth platform. Um, so he's expected to win the next election, which is going to happen next year. A change of government could affect that. I think it's more likely that Mr. Modi is going to come back. And I suppose the hope is that he will introduce policies that will um, change some of uh, some of these directions. So on the one hand, deliver the kind of technocratic reforms that, that people thought he was going to do, but also to try and do something to to, to slightly curb the trend towards inequality that uh, that you've seen in India. So I mean, I think the Indian economic story at the moment is is pretty successful. I mean, the top line rate of growth is strong, and you're getting a lot of inward investment. So companies mm -hmm. like Walmart just invested yeah. 15, 17 billion dollars to buy an Indian startup. Um, Nonetheless, uh, I, I think India would benefit from a, a what the economists sometimes call a more inclusive growth path, which is similar to those which you've seen places like Thailand, Malaysia, China. They've been a little bit more inclusive. So, right because because you mentioned uh, Flipkart, and, and obviously, right now India is seen as a great opportunity, great location for opportunity for a lot of companies. You mentioned uh, uh, a Walmart, and there are many others that believe that this is the next great land for them to be a part of. You would think that a lot of that wealth and that, a lot of that investment would end up being a great benefit for the country as a whole, but I believe it seems like you're you're also saying the fact that even this investment could expand that that difference, that uh, that inequality even further. No, I mean I tend to think that inward investment is a good thing for India. Um, its uh, FDI uh, ranking has been pretty strong. It's attracted a lot of foreign capital, um, and I think that that's broadly speaking a good thing. I mean, in in the end, India wants to have a vibrant free market. The problem is that. A, it needs to have measures that are going to help those who are not being taken along for the ride. And it also means to needs to make sure that the market is operating freely, that, that, that in a sense this isn't growth that is predominantly coming from a kind of cronyistic kind of investment, but that is coming from fair and open competition. And over the last 10 years, both of those things have been a bit of a problem in India. And so I think you, I don't think there's a kind of contradiction here. I mean, I think you can be in favor of plenty of inward investment and the fact that companies from Walmart to Facebook to Google are investing very heavily in India. And I think over the, you know, over the long term, those investments are, right. are exactly right. The question is, can India grow steadily at something approaching the rates that China did 
while having very high levels of inequality and, and other problems that I deal with in my book, like instability in the banking system, lots of kind of bad debts, which have come out of the result of a lot of crony capitalism. And I think the evidence on that is much more mixed that I think if India were to be able to have a more sort of open, um, competitive free market system as opposed to one that was um, that, that, that had a lot of corruption and cronyism, it would probably grow more steadily. But, but it also co- is coming at a time where uh, it seems like there are more and more people that want to go to the bigger cities in India right now, a, a little bit similar to what we see here in the United States with people, you know, wanting to live in towns rather than live in the uh, in the suburban areas, correct? Well, that's a good thing. I mean, in the end, India is still an still a rural society, and much as I mean, in a sense, the story of America's Gilded Age was one of mass urbanization. So, America before the Civil War was a rural society, and then afterwards, it very quickly became um, an urban one. So, a city like Chicago had a population of only about ninety thousand at the end of the Civil War, and it was up to a million forty years later. Um, India is, is is a transition of far greater magnitude. So you're talking about somewhere between 300 and 400 million people, so greater than the population of the United States, moving from Indian villages to cities over the next 20, 30 years. Now, um, that's going to be an enormous challenge to manage that. But in the end, it's a good thing. I mean, you can't have productive um environmentally sustainable society that's based around village agriculture. You know, the right. future is an urban one. Um, the question is, can you can you manage that? I mean, how, do, how does politics and business change to adapt to a very, very rapid um, change in the structure of your population? The Chinese managed it, but the Chinese are autocrats, and they also did it at a time in which their population didn't have smartphones. India is a messy democracy, and its population now does have smartphones, and so it's an entirely different challenge. How how important right now, you mentioned uh, uh, Prime Minister Modi, how important is uh, the relationship between India and the United States at a political level at this point? I mean, very important. It's one of the most consequential in the world. Um, I mean, at a very crude geopolitical level, um, America backs the rise of India as a balance against China. So if, if there are two large superpowers emerging in Asia, then one of them, namely China, can't dominate. And so India and America have got closer and closer in geopolitical terms and in other areas like sort of swapping defense technology. Um, that hasn't, although Walmart has was one big headline deal, actually there hasn't been as many other blockbuster deals by U.S. companies um, in India. There, there's been quite a lot of tech investment. So Silicon Valley VCs have been investing in Indian tech companies, and there have been the odd deal here or there. But there's a lot more uh, trade and investment that could occur between these two countries. But in the end, whether or not Mr. Trump and Mr. Modi get on with one another is one of the big geopolitical issues for the next 20 or 30 years. Why do you think then there hasn't been more investment in India in recent years? Well, it's partly because of the kind of investment that India needs. Um, so, uh, you know, India is in a sort of early stage of its industrialization. Um, and so it particularly needs investment in things like heavy industry. doesn't tend to be what the U.S. Um, specializes in. So the U.S. is in manufacturing is companies like GE and Boeing, advanced manufacturing or services or IT. Um, so the countries that invest in India and Germany actually kind of invest quite a lot in India because it provides more basic manufacturing. Uh, but there's also a function of distance. I mean, it's just it's a long way away. So right. India is more likely to trade with its with its neighboring countries. But as I say, that's not to, in, in a sense a raw measure of trade is not the, the the correct way of looking at a geopolitical relationship. I mean, in the end, 
um, as Asia changes very quickly, then both the U.S. and India have good reasons to become more friendly with one another as they look warily at, at China and its uh, its enormous rise. Yeah, that was going to be my next question is because China obviously is trying to play a much larger role and, and is in many cases uh, in that in that part of the world right now. And you're talking about with India and China. Uh, obviously, two of the largest countries, if not the largest countries on the planet, but also the largest economies as well. Yeah, that's right. I mean, India and China have a very um, potentially conflicting relationship. They share a very long land border. They have a number of military disputes. And and as China has risen, so it's begun to encroach in India's backyard. So India is still a lot weaker economically and militarily than China is. Um, but China, uh, it's it sort of it, it's building relationships with countries all around India, and it has an increasingly strong military. And so the Indians don't like this very much. They they feel like they're being kind of hemmed in in their own backyard, and that's partly why. Uh, under the previous set of leaders, Mr. Obama and the previous Indian Prime Minister, America and India were sort of nudging closer to one another. Now, under Mr. Trump, this has become rather more complicated because he's a very uh, sort of disruptive figure on the international scene. And so the Indians aren't really quite sure what to make of him. He, he's not such a reliable uh, a sort of steady partner as uh, Barack Obama was. But in, in some sense, Mr. Modi and Mr. Trump seem to like one another. Um, they are cut from a similar cloth. They're both outsiders um, in their own sort of political world. They both dislike their country's um, liberal sort of left heritage. Um, so we'll just have to see. I mean, if Mr. Trump is clever, then he'll look to India as a great potential friend as he tries to confront China on trade and on other issues. Um, but uh, it, it's always hard to tell how Mr. Trump's diplomacy is going to play out. We're talking with James Crabtree, who is the author of the book, The Billionaire Raj, A Journey Through India's New Gilded Age. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. I mean, it is interesting, the the rise of all of these billionaires in this country and obviously very much the, the familial kind of impact that they have in a variety of different sectors, whether it be, you know, real estate or uh, investment, uh, airline, whatever it might be. They have a, a great impact on how a lot of these cities are really being led for the next, you know, 50 to 100 years. Yeah, it was the thing that most captivated me about about Indian business when I moved to India, <coughs> excuse me, in 2011. So I stayed there for five years. And I think if you if you grow up in the UK or the US, then you know you can be interested in business and corporate culture. You can you can work and cover this as you do and I did. Um, but the notion of a tycoon, a, a kind of buccaneering business figure, these figures are, are sort of lost in in our culture nowadays. You have maybe somebody like Elon Musk in the US or Richard Branson in the UK. Um, who have a, a kind of similar adventurous spirit, and you do have a few conglomerates left. But typically, these business figures are rare beasts nowadays in our culture. But in India, they still rule the roost. And so I turned up in Mumbai, the Indian financial capital, and so I you know, began to learn about the men who ran, you know, who appear at the top of the Indian billionaires list. So people like Mukesh Ambani, who is now the richest man in Asia, 
who runs a conglomerate called Reliance Industries and whose um, who's amazing billion-dollar home appears on the front cover of the American edition of my book. And I was just captivated by these people. They take yeah. risks at a level that, that uh, is sort of unheard of now in, in the more restrained corporate culture of the industrialized West. And as you say, these, these billionaires who run big conglomerates tend to be family-owned, tend to be you know great risk takers they're, they're captivating fascinating people and so the, the sort of joy of writing this book was being able to tell some of their stories for a western audience you mentioned mr ambani how how did he come into having the the obviously the large wealth that that he has and you mentioned the the house that is on the front cover of, of the book here in the united states it is an incredible looking piece of architecture that he has put together for for his residence yeah, I mean, it's a remarkable thing. I mean, if you if you think about the, the sort of spirit of an age is often defined in its most remarkable buildings. So if you think about the American Gilded Age, then we think about the mansions of Fifth Avenue or the, 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 the clifftops of Newport, Rhode Island, often somehow in the era of the Great Gatsby, you know, this, this is what people see as the, the spirit of the moment. And so in India, that's very much wrapped up in this building in downtown Mumbai called Antilia, which is a 70-story skyscraper. It's only 27 stories on the inside because they're all triple height. Um, and as I say, people call it the billion-dollar home for Mr. Ambani and his family. It's a very distinctive, unusual building. And if, even if you think about all the other major cities of the world with all of their extremes of wealth in you know in new york or san francisco beijing sydney wherever it might be there's no real building like this and it tells you that there's something very remarkable going on um in india mr ambani actually inherited a chunk of his money so his dad was the richest man in india before him um but in a sense as opposed to being a he's a second generation entrepreneur they're often quite successful and so he's taken the business that his father started and really expanded it very dramatically to the point now where as i say his fortune is now he just overtook according to one of the rankings he just overtook jack maher to become the richest right. man in asia how, how similar are these tycoons to the, the ones that we commonly refer to the families that we refer to here in the united states like the rockefellers uh how, how similar are they to to them i mean obviously we're talking about much different eras uh in terms uh, of uh you know what is actually available for use in terms of technology and and to a degree lifestyle but but similarly having great wealth is having great wealth um, I mean, I think they're quite similar. So Mr. Ambani's father, the, the figure who I thought he was most similar to when I was reading up on the American Gilded Age was Cornelius Vanderbilt. So Vanderbilt was one of the earlier of the, the tycoons. He was the richest man who had ever been, uh, certainly in the modern era, when he died um, in the 1880s um, and had a very similar reputation to Dhirubhai Ambani, who was the father of Mukesh Ambani. They, they were outsiders. They were first-generation tycoons. They weren't looked upon very well by polite society at the time, but they created an ex extraordinary amount of wealth by disrupting the political systems that they operated in. And they were also arch users of that political system. So they, they had kind of, you know, friends in all the right places. And so they skirted that boundary between innovation and disruptive innovation and on the one hand and crony capitalism on the other. And so I think there's a lot of similarities between the the giants of the, um, the, the U.S. tycoon era, the 
the Carnegie's and Vanderbilt's and Jay Gould and J.P. Morgan and people like that, and the current crop of tycoons in India, both for good and ill, in a sense, for their ambition, their ability to to develop new business models, to pioneer new industries where they weren't before, but also often because of their ability to work the political system to gain an extra advantage. And, and it's that second issue that I think India is now struggling with, as the U.S. Uh, did um, uh, up until the era that followed that, what, what you call the progressive era. Yeah. And and you also talk about the fact that uh, the not necessarily this White House or this administration, but the business side of President Trump, the Trump organization, has obviously taken an interest in, in India as well and wants to you know play a significant role moving forward. Yeah, it's an interesting question that... Um, uh, so for the Trump Organization, India is their largest foreign market or measured by by construction of towers. They have five buildings that are going up in India. That's more than any other country. And so Mr. Trump uh, visited India on a number of occasions, and his eldest son, Donald Trump Jr., goes back and forth. Um, you know, they have a number number of partnerships. And so the, the, the suspicion was that Trump was going to be a very pro-Indian president, um, he seemed to think that he understood India. He liked India. He had quite a lot of support from um, Indian American, from the Indian American diaspora. He gave speeches during the campaign um, that he won to be president uh, in in parts of the U.S. that have a sizable um, Indian diaspora population. And so, yeah, the, the the thought was that he'd be instinctively pro-Indian. It hasn't quite worked out like that. I mean, some of his measures, a uh, his general trade war, um, although it's directed primarily at China, isn't very popular in India because it's quite disruptive and destabilizing. And then there are a bunch of other things that he's been doing. Um, he doesn't much like the fact that Indian IT companies um, use what's called the H-1B visa system. He yeah. says this is um, this is abusive. And actually, I have to say, I kind of agree with him on that, that, um, that there is a case in which some of the Indian IT companies are abusing that. But anyway, there's a range of reasons why Trump's kind of um, quite sort of hardball approach hasn't gone over terribly well um, with India. But certainly it is true to say that that Trump has kind of business dealings in India. Um, he's been there. He, he sort of knows what the what, how the system works. And, and so many people think that that means he will, you know, sort of he, he sees India as a kind of as a friend, somebody he knows, uh, knows how to deal with. So you mentioned uh, a moment ago the, the Gilded Age in the United States and, and that being followed by a progressive era. Uh, are, are there prospects for that same, uh, that type of path to be followed in India as well? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think these things don't happen by accident. They require you know, deliberate, progressive reforms. Um, but I think if you were to sit in the middle of Manhattan in 1880, actually, literally, if you go and look at pictures of, of downtown Manhattan in the 1880s, they look remarkably similar to Mumbai today. Um, you know, you almost wouldn't be able to tell the difference if they were side by side. So um, uh, you, you'd look at America in that era and you'd probably be quite depressed. As I said, you know, you, you'd see huge amounts of wealth being created by rather irresponsible looking business people. You'd see very, very corrupt um, politicians. Uh, it was Mark Twain who coined the phrase the Gilded Age in the mid-1880s when he wrote a novel that contained that as his title, and that was a sort of satire on the incredible corruption of the, the then Congress and business elite. Um, but over 20 or 30 years that followed that, um, things improved for a variety of reasons, partly to do with the assertion of power by the middle class over politics, partly to do with urbanization, and partly to do with Progressive political leaders who came in and combated corruption and, and sort of broke up um, 
entrenched corporate power. Um, and I don't see any reason why any of those things can't happen in India. And in a sense, India has an advantage that it's a late starter. There are lots of other countries that have developed successfully. Um, and so it has to learn the lessons of those and develop its own model. Now, it's not going to be easy. Uh, it's, I don't think it's not going to be possible for India to mimic exactly the path that China took or probably to achieve the sustained growth rates that China um, uh, achieved during its 20 or 30 year rise. But I don't see any reason why India in theory can't do do very well and be one of the, if not the fastest growing economy in the world for the next you know, 20 or 30 years. But in order to do that, its government needs to introduce a whole host of different reforms to manage that process. And I think that's that's the question of will it be able to do that? In about the last 45 seconds, then, what does that potential path mean, though, Again, going back to something I mentioned earlier, to the people that are on the lower end of the economic scale, will you see that that separation, that that uh, that gap, that that cavern between the haves and the have-nots increase in the future? Um, well, I hope it doesn't. Uh, sure. I, yeah. I, I think it sort of. I think India start, sort of stands at a crossroads. I think. If nothing is done, I think that really is the, the risk, that if India continues for the next 10 or 15 years, as it has for the last 10 or 15 years, you're going to find a country that really has unprecedented levels of inequality um, and in which very few countries have been able to develop quickly. Um, but I think if they begin to take you know, relatively sensible and not necessarily sort of all that far reaching, you know, just making sure the rich pay their taxes, beginning to build systems of social support for those at the bottom of the heap, then uh, I think they should be able to, to, to move forward as other countries have done. So I think there's good reason to be optimistic. And I think that's why a lot of companies are investing in, uh, in India at the moment. James, great having you on the show today. Thank you very much for your time. Very good. Thank you so much. Thank you. The book, again, is The Billionaire Raj, A Journey Through India's New Gilded Age. James Crabtree is the author of the book. The book is available in bookstores and online uh, for your purchase right now. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 